This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Good morning. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is away today and Monday. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the program today, we've got our news panel reassembled. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta will be here today. We reflect on the Saskatchewan attacks from last weekend and explore the issues with the criminal justice system. We also discuss Queen Elizabeth's death and look at how that may affect Canada's relationship with the monarchy. And later on in the show, Michael McNeely is going to describe accessibility issues he's been encountering at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. All that and lots more coming up now with Dave Brown on AMI. Great to have you here. Great to be back here on Now. Dave is away today and on Monday, so you got me for a couple of days. And let's now get to your top story of the day. And that is the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Royal watchers and world leaders are paying tribute to the life and death of Queen Elizabeth. French news station BFM updated their citizens with the latest news following the death of the monarch, holding a special edition from their studios in London. In Paris, Parisian Ania laid flowers by the wall of the UK embassy as he expressed his sorrow at the Queen's passing. I was sad last night. She was a person who worked for decades in the name of values that go beyond Britain's borders. Cyprus's president, Nikos Anastasiadis, said Cyprus mourns with Britain. We are sharing uh, the um, hard feelings of the royal family and the British people. European Parliament president, Roberta Metzola, recognised the Queen's hard work. The world has lost one of her greatest daughters, who dedicated her life to service, and she will always be remembered. I'm Karen Chamas. Meantime, the British monarch's representative here in Canada said in a televised address Thursday evening that the late Queen was fond of Canada and considered this country to be her second home. Governor General Mary Simon says Her Majesty cared about our well-being, about Canada and all the unique stories which make up our beautiful country. Her comments came as others across the country mourned the loss of the 96-year-old monarch. She says the Queen had given her a piece of advice when she was appointed to the position earlier this year. Be gentle with yourself. Simon says she has come to understand Her Majesty's words to mean while we should work hard on the issues that matter, we should also take time to pause and lead with understanding and respect. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Queen Elizabeth II had a deep and abiding love for Canadians. 
the Prime Minister was somber and at times struggling to maintain his composure in a brief tribute to Her Majesty from Vancouver this morning. Trudeau's cabinet retreat will continue today, but the morning meeting was delayed as news broke from Buckingham Palace. Trudeau last met with the Queen during a trip to London in March, and he says he cannot believe that conversation was their last. He has known the Queen since he was a child, and he says she was wise, thoughtful, curious, funny, and one of his favorite people in the world. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Vancouver. The Queen also known for uh, her sense of humor and a great smile. And during a visit to Canada on October 7th, 2002, she was in Vancouver. The Queen told the story about her mother. The Queen said that during a 1939 visit to Canada, her mother had to settle an argument between two war veterans in a Quebec hospital. One said she was born in Scotland, so I say she's Scots. The other said... She married an Englishman, so I say she's English. (laughs) They decided to let Queen Elizabeth settle their cultural differences. When the two were presented to Her Majesty, they asked, are you Scots or are you English? My mother paused and then replied, since I have landed in Quebec, I think we can say I'm a Canadian. The Queen told the luncheon hosted by Prime Minister Jacques Chrétien that she knew exactly how her mother felt and that she treasures her bond with Canadians everywhere. Now, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, Britain now has a new monarch following her death. And King Charles III will be the head of state for the United Kingdom, Canada, and 13 other countries, including Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. Jill Lawless reports King Charles has a busy day ahead. There is a plan that's been in the works for many, many years for the death of the Queen, and that's now being enacted. It's obviously subject to change, and it ultimately is overseen and decided upon by the new king, Charles. So today is is the first full day of his reign. He'll come back from Balmoral, where he and other royals were with the queen, and he will meet with senior ministers and the prime minister, and he will sign off on the details of what happens next. And finally, in a Queen-related story, Rogers Sports and Media says former CTV National News anchor Lisa Laflamme will cover the death of Queen Elizabeth II as a special correspondent for City News. The network announcing today that the Canadian journalist will be in London to lead City News' coverage of events commemorating the Queen's life, the Queen's funeral, and the transition to King Charles III's reign. Colette Watson, president of Rogers Sports and Media, says Laflamme's talent and experience are the right fit for a news event of this magnitude. In a written statement published by the company, Laflamme says she is honoured to help tell the story of the Queen's life and legacy. Laflamme's abrupt dismissal from CTV's flagship newscast prompted surprise and concern that she may have been dismissed due to her appearance, which Bell Media has denied. The long-term TV journalist says she was blindsided by the move, while Bell Media said her her termination of contract after 35 years was a business decision and uh, that uh, they wanted to take their news anchor role in a different direction.
So that's your top story of the day. Let's get to your daily poll question, and we'll begin with yesterday's question and results. Yesterday's question, where do you do most of your exercise? Was it at home, at the gym or a studio, outdoors, or you don't exercise? And 44% of respondents went with at home or outdoors, 12% going with I don't exercise, and 0%, nobody voting for the gym, which is a little bit surprising. But those are your results from yesterday's question. Today's poll question, what describes your feelings about the monarchy's role in Canada? So your options are, I am a monarchist. I am not a monarchist. I don't mind it, or it doesn't really matter to me. Let's go around the table here, and we'll begin with Alex Smythe and get his thoughts. Alex, good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, thank you. So, I, w- I want to hear what y- you know your feelings are about the monarchy. My feelings are pretty uh, standard, pretty simple. I've said it on this show many times before. I am not a huge monarchist. I am not uh, one who uh, either uh, is in full is support of the monarchy, but I also don't really spend much time worrying about it. Um, so, I think in this case, I would probably say. I don't mind it. Uh, I, you know, I put up with it, I guess, is the best way to put it. What about you? Yeah, so it's funny because I had an uh, evolving view on this topic for many, many years. Like, actually, when I was younger in my, uh, like, late pre-teens, early teens, I was actually a, um honor guard for one of the Queen's visits to Canada and Toronto when I was uh, a member of the Scouts. And I um, I kind of stood as she came by on her Diamond Jubilee tour. I got to meet with uh, uh, Prince Philip and, and talk with him and other dignitaries from Canada and around the world. And that was always a very special experience for me. But at the same time, as I've grown older and I kind of thought more critically of what is the role of the monarchy, I would say I'm not a monarchist anymore. I, I don't see there being an intrinsic value of having them being connected to Canada in any way. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's still a holdover from a uh, an old world view ideology structure that is no longer really applicable in modern society. And especially when we start to evaluate colonialism, the, the impact of that, that it should be reevaluated. And I think Canada would be better served if we are no longer attached directly or indirectly to uh, the throne. All right. Let's uh, bring in Eliza. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well, Mike. So, the monarchy and Canada, what say you? Well, like you and like Alex, I don't know. I'm not a, I would I wouldn't say I am a monarchist, but I don't know how much it affects my life personally. I would probably put myself somewhere between I don't mind it and it just it doesn't matter to me, doesn't affect me that much, but what Alex said, like, it's it's kind of an outdated, older society kind of a thing, at least in my eyes. And honestly, I don't know that much about what the monarchy really does for Canada. So mm-hmm. maybe this is the time for me to get educated about it and learn more. Um, but I don't know. I'm not a monarchist. Yeah. I, I look at it. I, I'm fascinated by the history. Uh, so I'm a big history buff. So, you know, we've recently been watching sort of the history of some of the palaces and a little bit of history of the monarchy. Um, but beyond that, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of along the same lines as Alex where I, I, I think it, it, there's, there's 
a line that's been drawn. It's time to move on from it. I think I'm more interested almost in the celebrity of yeah. it, right? Like the <laughs> the uh, the entertainment aspect of it all. And and I think a lot of people are are still sort of fascinated by the by that whole entertainment value. So we want to hear from you on our poll question today. You can vote on it uh, at uh, Accessible Media Inc on Facebook at Accessible Media on Twitter. So get out there onto uh, Twitter, get out there onto the Facebook and uh, make sure that you get your vote in there on our Twitter poll. In the meantime, let's find out what's happening outside today. Weather-wise, here's Alex Smythe. Here's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 15. Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a mix of sun and clouds this morning with showers this afternoon and a high of 22. In Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny with a high of 28. Ottawa, Ontario, same thing, it's sunny and a high of 28. In Toronto, Ontario, sunshine and a high of 27. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's living up to its name, there's showers most of the day with the risk of thunderstorms and a high of 16. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny with a high of 20. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sunny clouds later and a high of 17. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a risk of showers this morning and a high of 16. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, a high of 18. Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, mainly sunny and a high of 12. In Vancouver, BC, well, it's sunny with a high of 22. And Victoria, BC, same thing. It's sunny, but with a high of 24. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, Coming up after the break, we are getting the news panel back together. Michelle McQuig is back with us from the Canadian Press. Joita Gupta is here as well. And we're going to reflect today uh, in our first segment on the Saskatchewan attacks from last weekend and explore the issues with criminal justice. That is coming up next here on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for the vacationing Dave Brown. It's Friday, so that means we are reassembling our news panel. Time to welcome in to the show our panelists. Juwita Gupta is here. Good morning, Juwita. Good morning, Mike. And Michelle McQuig is back with us, too. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Uh, Very well. Thank you very much. Uh, All right. Our first story um, in the uh, panel discussions today is uh, about the attacks in Saskatchewan uh, this past weekend that have raised a number of questions. The stabbings that left 10 people dead and over a dozen people injured put the criminal justice system into focus. And it's been revealed the now deceased suspect had an extensive criminal record and was known to police. Michelle? This is the topic that you've brought to the panel here. Um, Why did the criminal justice angle on this story grab your attention? 
come into focus over the past week because it was such a fluid situation for four days straight and you were you were so um, or those newsroom nerds among us were so sort of consumed with the day-to-day developments of is he still out there? Are there any more going to be any more deaths, etc.? That some of the broader picture issues didn't necessarily snap into focus, but this one did start to because of the parole board documents that a number of outlets were able to get their hands on, including Canadian Press. Uh, it turns out Miles Sanderson's criminal history went back nearly a decade. There was a well-documented correlation between his acts of violence in his past and substance abuse. There were lo- n- numerous red flags raised in the parole board reports and documents about a history of domestic violence, for instance, escalating attacks uh, longer and longer terms in prison, uh, t- very targeted attacks against members of his community. And then, in fact, it all came to pass this exactly this way this past week with 10 people dead, 18 injured, and he's also a suspect in the death of his brother. Uh, so th- there's just a lot to unpack potentially about, you know, what kind of red flags should have jumped out. Uh, police handling of this sort of story is always a big one in, at the best of times, but we are talking about the RCMP, who also has a particularly checkered history around these sorts of things, uh, specific, specifically in light of the 2020 shooting in Nova Scotia. So I thought we'd all have a certain amount to chew on with this kind of topic. Absolutely. Joita, what did you make of uh, the the criminal past uh, of uh, Sanderson um, as it emerged earlier this week? I remember, uh, you know, on Tuesday morning uh, reading an article f- uh, from the Global Mail and the Global Mail Today, which just it, it literally almost was uh, a transcript of uh, the, the rap sheet. Mm-hmm. And it just... Like I, as I was reading it, it, it sort of struck me like it was just one offense after another, and it, it almost felt like it, it. It wasn't even a progression as far as the level of violence that I was reading. It was just all violent and 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 horrific. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you've both made the point that he had a very checkered past and had a number of red flags, was clearly known to the police, and has been in and out of the justice system. He has about a decade's history of domestic violence and has been uh, accused of the attempted uh, murder of his father-in-law. And so he has really been someone that the police was aware of to, uh, to an extent. The other thing that becomes evident when you look at his criminal profile is that he did have a history of alcohol and drug use as a young person. And I think that is an important factor in the story as well, not to mention that um, he had a lot of instability as a child growing up. Uh, he went a bit, he was shuffled between two homes, uh, his father's home and his grandfather's home on reserve, and there was a lot of domestic violence in both of those homes. I'm not trying to necessarily be sympathetic towards him, but I am making the point that he does fit a profile. He is someone who's had an, ins- an, an a highly unstable childhood and teenage years. Um, And he's also someone with a long history of offenses. So you could have made the argument or you could make the argument that given his checkered past, the police should have been keeping a very close eye on him. But I'm going to make sort of the philosophical argument that even if he had been given a longer sentence, let's say he'd been given a 10 to 15 year sentence for the kinds of crimes he was accused of having committed, he would have gotten out in maybe 10 to 15 years. Let's make that argument. And when he was out and about in society again, he would have been someone who would 
likely have reoffended again. And that brings me to my philosophical point, which is about the role of prisons. More often than not, and this is the part of the criminal justice, the, this is the criminal justice angle of the story that truly resonates with me. More often than not, prisons have become warehouses for people who are dealing with substance abuse and addictions and other problems. When people don't get treatment and support in prisons, when we sort of think of prisons as being punitive rather than rehabilita rehabilitative in nature, then we end up with situations like Miles Sanderson. I mean, he has uh, many problems in his life and the community uh, paid the price for the failure of the criminal justice system. In this yeah, respect. I agree with you. And, and another case that sort of falls under the, the, the same sort of umbrella was the mass shooting that happened in Memphis uh, earlier this week. And I heard the mayor of Memphis talking yesterday about uh, the fact that the, the suspect in that case was released from prison earlier than, than the full length of his sentence. And the comment was, if he had served his full, I think it, I'm going to throw out three years. I, I don't recall if it was exactly that. But if he'd served his full three-year sentence, four people would be alive today. And I sat there and I, I was in a parking lot when I was listening to the, the comments on the radio. And I thought, okay, well, they might have been there today. Mm -hmm. But who's to say that at the end of those three years when he got out, four other people wouldn't be dead because it, as you point out, we, we're not addressing, all, all we're addressing is the length of a sentence. We're not addressing why, what the person is, is doing while they're incarcerated and what we want out of that prison system. If all it is is to, to say they have to go there because they have to be segregated from society and they have to be punished and, you know, they have to serve their entire sentence then what's to say that when they are released from prison, serving that full sentence, that things would have a different uh, outcome, rather? Because if we're, I think we really need to examine what we expect from the prison system, and and you know how how important is rehabilitation, and 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 wanting to have people reintegrate themselves into society and not reoffend, or at least lower maybe the the expectation of uh, of being a, you know a reoffend or to reoffend rather. I just sort of sat there scratching my head and say, well, what do you want out of the prison system? And I think that's a big question, Michelle. And it's kind of it's questions like that that are being asked now. But I think it also speaks to not only do we want out of the criminal justice system and what kind of social supports need to be integrated into that do is it, it this is you know a system that could perhaps use some broader acknowledgments that it's not just as easy as you know convict and incarcerate but it does speak to some broader social safety net questions what happens to people who get out or what happens to people to prevent them from becoming part of the carceral system in the first place we're talking about housing we're talking about poverty we're talking about all kinds of factors that really play into society at large here and it's hard to discuss any aspect of this as discrete from one another i think they all operate in, in tandem to be honest so it's questions like that that i think are going to be interesting and, and that i'm 
I'm going to be interested to see what is going to happen when the parole board undertakes a review that it has now promised to do in light of the Sanderson situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to see what may come out of that, what kind of kind of gaps that they do find, because this is definitely going to be one to watch. Uh, they, they have all the paperwork they need to to comb through and reach some interesting conclusions. Uh, but I, we don't have a timeline on when that's going to be, and we don't know exactly what the scope of the inquiry is. Yeah. Um, so well- to be seeing what happens there. What we do have a timeline on was that uh, he had stopped seeing his parole officer for several mm-hmm. months. And to in, me, in May, I like mean, five months. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's a huge red flag for me. But I also think it speaks to the, the lack of funding for jobs like parole officers. And so, so, so here's my, my, my sort of hot take on, uh, on spending on the, ju- the, the, the justice system in this country. It's kind of like healthcare. You know, where do you want to spend? How much do you want to spend? And where are you going to cut in order to, to, to make that a priority? Mm-hmm. That, that's the, the big question. I mean, healthcare and education, you know, at the provincial level, always seem to be the ones that are the, the, the financial, uh, the, the punching bag for, for the bean counters, where we need to cut some money. Okay, that, those are the first two spots where we cut it. But not having ever looked at, at a government's books and seen all the numbers laid out for me, I don't know where else you can cut and what are, uh, sort of reallocations of funds you can make. But all we've heard for now several years is the importance of spending money and paying attention to mental health issues and to addiction issues. And it seems like this is exactly what we're talking about. This is one of the many ways that we need to look at mental health spending and investment in this country. And when I hear a politician talk about their investing, well, that's an investment, right? When you're spending uh, money on, uh, on, on highways, that's not an investment. That's not an investment. That's just continuing to spend on things that you need to spend on as a government. Mental health uh, and, and health care uh, dollars, that's an investment. I, I, I really feel strongly about that. Uh, the RCMP is another angle on this that we'll, we'll sort of end on. Um, Michelle, yeah. how do you feel you know, they come out of this situation uh, right out of the gate being criticized um, and, and, and comparing the... Nova Scotia mass shooting to this incident. Yeah, I feel it, I feel like it's a bit too early to say if those two cases are totally analogous. I feel like there may be a bit of an apples and oranges dimension to this, uh, just in light of how long things played out. But there definitely are some questions that have emerged for for me and for several others. Um, in terms of alerting the public, that part seems to have gone a bit more smoothly than it did in Portapic. They were definitely much more proactive in reaching out to people, sending alerts. That's how we at CP were able to start getting the story moving. That's how we got the sense that there was anything developing at all out there. Um, so that part improved, but there are questions to be raised. For one, the extent of Miles Sanderson's criminal history and violent past did not come out, and I suspect some people might wonder why that kind of information wasn't shared as part of the public alerts. Uh, there's also the whole situation from, I believe it was Tuesday, when uh, there was an alarm going out that he was back in the community that he had originally targeted and a whole bunch of cops swept in on this and descended on the community. They were already very on edge, deeply traumatized from what's happened. And then false alarm, he's not here. It's hard to say what really happened there or if there are grounds to criticism until we can hear the police's side of the story, which won't be for some time, I don't think. 
but I don't think they're going to walk away without a whole lot of scrutiny about how they handled aspects of this. Although, you know, at the end of the day, he was arrested. Uh, he has died. He died in police custody. That's a whole other set of mm-hmm. questions to, to resolve. Uh, we don't know what happened there at all at this point. Um, but he was ultimately arrested without additional loss of life beyond Sunday. Julia? You know, in addition to all the things that Michelle has pointed out, I think the questions about why he died in custody are very pressing and people have a, have a lot of eyebrows went up when that announcement was made. Um, the other uh, angle that I will touch on is just around why it might have taken so long to apprehend uh, the two suspects. Remember, we started out with Damien and Miles Anderson. And I think it opens up this whole conversation about the unique challenges around rural policing. If you uh, lived in Toronto and you were in a getaway car, you probably wouldn't have been able to avoid the police in the way you have been. You would have been able to do in rural Saskatchewan driving up and down highways. So I think there are some particularities or specificities around the logistics of rural policing that would be very interesting to get into. Unlike the Nova Scotia situation where the police was roundly criticized and soundly criticized for not alerting the public uh, adequately or efficiently enough, in this instance, at least in the local area, the police did manage, the RCMP did manage to issue an alert within two hours. So I suppose there is some improvement, but there is still there are questions about the scope of that alert, as Michelle mentioned, and whether even in in this instance they might have taken too long. Um, the thing with Miles Anderson is it's going to be very interesting to see whether the police should have monitored him uh, a little bit closer. Remember that uh, he was tech. Miles Anderson was technically out of law. Uh, uh, he had to, he was technically in violation of his parole. And so the way that I understand this is he's technically flagged with the police, but he's only ever you know uh, the way this is dealt with is if he was pulled over for a traffic offense, they'd say, "Hey, wait a minute, you're also uh, you know you haven't been seeing your parole officer." But it maybe there was an argument there that someone with this a dangerous offender, someone with this incredible history of violence. They should have perhaps the police should have been more proactive in tracking this person down. Uh, So I have a lot of questions about this. But the other thing that I'll close out by saying is just this morning, I read some coverage in the CBC about uh, the James Creek uh, Cree First Nation wanting uh, some form of tribal policing and having some conversations about indigenous representation in the police force. And I think there is uh, as yet uh, unexplored questions about the role of colonization and racism in this in this particular case, and whether we need to be thinking about policing being more community oriented and more re- and police forces, including the RCMP, being more representative of the communities that they serve. Yeah, I I, I know that in Alberta, there's a lot of talk happening right now about the role of the RCMP and whether they want a a provincial police force of their own that can better patrol and, and serve rural areas of the province. And that's certainly one of the first things that jumped out on this case was you're not dealing with a huge police force in a metropolitan area. You're dealing with a a sort of a northern uh, spot of the province that is not heavily populated. And you're dealing with a smaller police force that's that's dealing with uh, a very dangerous situation. And I think from the communication standpoint, some might even say that they they went 
above and beyond what they may have done in the past because of what had happened in Nova Scotia and the fact that it was the same police force, the national force, dealing with the situation. Um, but I think it's going to again, we're going to have a, another reevaluation of uh, of policing in rural areas and what's the best way to do it. And uh, I'm anxious to see what kind of conclusions we're going to come out of that uh, with. When we come back after a quick break, we're going to discuss Queen Elizabeth's death and look at how that may affect Canada's relationship with the monarchy. You're tuned to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is off today and Monday, and will return to the show on Tuesday. Yesterday, Queen Elizabeth II died at the age of 96. She was the longest-serving British monarch and Canadian head of state. Joetta, this is a topic that you have brought to us here today. So let me start by asking about your reactions and reflections to Elizabeth's time uh, on the throne. It is certainly the end of an era. I think that's what a lot of commentators are saying, the end of the second Elizabethan age. She has been, whether or not you bear a lot of affection for the monarchy or even the concept of the monarchy, she has been a fixture in people's lives. I think it's fair to say that there isn't a Canadian under the age of 17 that has been around, you know, uh, that has not had her as a reigning head of state. That is a lot of people who have seen her picture on the coins, on the $20 notes and on stamps. I have to note that while a lot of politicians in recent memory, um, certain U.S. presidents come to mind, have had uh, terms marked by a great deal of controversy in her seven decades on the throne. Queen Elizabeth, or the late Queen Elizabeth, has generally managed to avoid controversy. I will note that one commentator on the BBC said that what controversy she has been surrounded by is largely owing to her family. And we can get into that a little bit more as well. But she tried to embody a couple of ideas duty and service to the public and this idea that the monarchy as an institution was above day-to-day politics whether or not you agree with the sentiment that was certainly something that she tried to embody over her over her 70 years on the throne I want to just pick up on this idea about the sovereign as a family, because I think with uh, her predecessors, you generally got the monarch and maybe the people closest to the monarch uh, being active in public life. But I think under Queen Elizabeth, we really saw the royal family or the quote unquote firm become more prominent in public life. And that might have been a good thing, because if you're a monarchist, it raises the profile of the institution. But it was that it might have been a bad thing because any scandal involving a member of her family uh, would then go and land on the queen as well. So 
it's really interesting to reflect on her 70 years because the world has changed so much. When she came to the throne, we were still recovering from the aftermath of the Second World War. Winston Churchill was still in office. And now, of course, you know, she's gone. She's seen Great Britain and the Commonwealth through the Cold War years. And a lot of decolonization has taken place under her reign. So, she has, uh, as the monarch, had 15 prime ministers in Great Britain, 12 prime ministers here in Canada. So she has seen a lot of people in come and go. And, uh, of course, Justin Trudeau was, as you heard in the clip off the top of the show, the very last Canadian prime minister to pay tribute to her. Michelle? Joetta really took the words out of my mouth in terms of her, the, the, the significance of all this. Absolutely irrespective of how you feel about the monarchy, the fact is history was made yesterday. The longest reigning monarch in British history died. We are now getting a new monarch for the first time in many generations to the point where most generations don't even know how it's supposed to look when this process gets triggered. What you know, what steps have to take place for a new monarch to be installed. So all of these things are, are interesting to see, but I, I'm like with Joita in that I'm reflecting on exactly how fascinating the Queen's career has been almost as an observer of, of society. So much change takes place over seven decades anyway, but these have been a particularly eventful and tumultuous seven decades, so many rises of forces that she never could have fathomed when she ascended to the throne in the middle of the Second World War. We're talking about technological forces, for sure, social ones. Um, absolutely fascinating. And, and through all of that turbulence, um, and we're talking not only about the things I just mentioned, but political turbulence in her home country. Uh, it's worth noting that the UK got a new prime minister and a new monarch within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but also family turbulence. Through all of that, she maintained a remarkably steady and consistent presence. You knew exactly what you were going to get when the Queen spoke in terms of the tone and the the vibe of what was going to be said. Um, she really, really did maintain that fixture and, and that position of herself as like the stable rock figure around which the other constitutions are formed, a regal presence, a very dignified presence at all times that was never really compromised. So absolutely, you know, apart any, over and above anything you might feel about the monarchy as an institution or even her as a person. Uh, she was a very significant figure, and this is a moment in history. Yeah, and and that's sort of what I was getting at yesterday uh, on social media when I said that, you know, you you cannot question her sense of duty and country. Um, And immediately someone slapped back at me and said, yeah, well, wasn't she tremendously racist? And I said, you know, was she involved in colonialism and and the, the, the British Empire? Absolutely. But it's not like you you can it, you can look at one aspect of her life and and acknowledge that her sense of duty and country is in my opinion unshakable while also being able to criticize another part of her reign and and the, the a lot of people look at the 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 whole empire system and think oh my god like how is that still happening even today so um I I continue to to say that I have no real use for the monarchy in my day-to-day life, but at the same time, I certainly have a lot of respect for someone who has given their life, now, albeit with many great comforts, 
you know, it's not like she was doing it in a uh, in a, a small one bedroom condo, uh, you know, on the on the west side of town. <laughs> uh, it, 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 there there have been comforts, but I would also challenge anyone to go live in that same fishbowl and tell me that you're entirely happy uh, living that life. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that that I think, as someone who does not follow uh, or feel the need for the monarchy to be involved in my day-to-day life. I still remember exactly where I was, what I was doing when I first heard the news yesterday. And um, it, it just felt like as I was listening to a talk radio show and the anchor said, Oh, do I, do I announce Queen Elizabeth is dead? Mm-hmm. And I, like it was like a, a, someone had come behind me and just sort of pushed me hard in the back. Wow. And it was like, what? So, yeah, it, it was a weird moment. And then, of course, talking to my mom last night and she uh, rem- remembered and reminded me of, uh, of the story of uh, being at the National Archives um, when the Queen was visiting Canada in 1977. And it was October, four-year-old me uh, peeking around a p- big pillar and the queen was standing there and yelling out, hi, queen. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that uh, that had made the news at the time that this cute little kid Aww, was a hi, queen. Her. And, uh, <laughs> That's really adorable. So that was kind of funny. And my mom's been telling that story for 45 years. So uh, so that one, that one Greatly sort of, so. that yeah, was cute. That, made, that made me laugh. You that know, made speaking me laugh. of telling stories, if you don't mind, um, I don't know if audience members who are visually impaired would have picked up on this, but if you watched the BBC yesterday... It was a fascinating, and Michelle would have an inkling of how to actually do this. It's this telling a story without actually telling the story or giving the news without actually giving the news, uh, where in the lead up to the announcement of Queen Elizabeth passing away, uh, they were making a lot of statements about how the doctors were concerned. But one of the tells was that all the anchors on BBC, the men were all in black suits with black ties and white shirts and the women mm. were all in black. And I and I, and I wouldn't have known that because that is such an, a significant tell. And I thought I'd mention it because if there were people in the audience, uh, these are the sort of ways in which people use visual cues to communicate the news, even if they are not allowed to actually read out the official announcement. So I, I, yeah. I, some, I thought that was very interesting as someone who's visually impaired. Absolutely. It certainly is. It, it, I, I have to say, I heard about that beforehand, and it, it makes you kind of wonder about how much intel they had, because mm. ahead of such a thing, that move can can go from dis- distasteful to right on point in the in the space of a single news alert, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I, I, I can't imagine they would have wanted to maintain that look if they didn't have a sense that things were moving more quickly than the it rest of the public was aware of. I also think yeah. I, along those lines, the fact that um, the, 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 the palace was very forthcoming, very forthright about uh, the, the fact that the family uh, members, the, mm-hmm. the grandchildren, they've, they'd all been told been there already this is if if you know you you should be with her right now and i thought to myself putting that out there rather than just sort of closing ranks and not reporting anything not making any statements it, it sort of said to me you know who out there hasn't gotten that phone call at some point mm-hmm. right where yeah. you've got a relative yeah. who's dying and they call you and you and they say you know if you want to 
if you want to see him or her uh, or, or your friend, your, your grandmother, whatever, it'd be a good time, right? And, and no one ever wants to say, you know, they're going to die in the next six hours. It's always done very gently. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to come by, it'd be a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just interesting to me that they shared that news that way yesterday. And it just made that so much, I think, so much more relatable to so many people because we've almost all been down that road and gotten that mm-hmm. phone call. It's a really good point. And it's worth noting that Buckingham Palace has, has in recent years anyway, been quite good about providing bulletins on the Queen's health. You know, during the mm-hmm. Jubilee, for instance, there would be notices saying that she won't be appearing at X or Y. But they would say, OK, she, you know, she's not doing this particular function because of, you know, back trouble or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. And they would make it clear that it was more minor. And I hadn't really thought about it from the way you were just describing, Mike, but you're right. This in that it is a very relatable thing. We've all had to, you know, take sick days from work, beg off social engagements because of a headache, whatever. But that kind of phone call of, okay, the family's coming mm-hmm. in now from, from out of town, that does humanize things a little bit. And there are there haven't been that many opportunities because of the, some of the elements we talked about before to connect, to feel connected to many members of the monarchy, but the Queen in particular on a very human level like that. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a final time out. We've got one more topic to discuss, and it is going to be healthcare and our relationship as Canadians with healthcare. Canadians are significantly unsatisfied with their access to healthcare. We're going to share that with you and discuss that a little bit more when we come back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross along with Michelle McQuig and Juwita Gupta. It's our Friday news panel. And our final topic to discuss is the state of healthcare. We've talked about it a lot, pretty extensively on this show. This week alone, we've been sharing stories about ER and ICU closures in BC, Ontario, and New Brunswick. And findings of a new Angus Reid Institute poll suggest Canadians are significantly less satisfied with their access to healthcare than Americans. 29% of Canadians reported experiencing chronic difficulty in accessing a physician. Only 13% of Americans said they experienced significant difficulty accessing care. So uh, this sort of jumped out at me. Um, I can't say I was that surprised. Um, I'm just kind of sitting here and thinking, okay, um, we're, I think in, in my lifetime, probably a good 20 years now into discussing difficult access to healthcare. And I've heard all the platitudes and all the cliches uh, from politicians about reinvesting in healthcare, ending hallway medicine, uh, access to a physician, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I haven't seen improvement. And yeah. when I see a poll here that says that 29% of Canadians uh, are dissatisfied with their uh, access to healthcare, I got to say, I'm a little surprised that it's not higher. So I'm wondering how uh, you guys sort of reacted when you saw those numbers. <laughs> I, I actually was surprised the American ones were as low as they were. <laughs> that was my first takeaway. But, um, but yeah, you know what? I, I, at the end of the day, I think I agree with you, Mike. Although it's worth, you know, thirty percent is is still a lot. 
um, there's a lot to to have difficulty with, I think, um, in terms of, like you said, the, the the stagnation. These issues have come up time and again in every conceivable campaign, every province, the feds, of course, and you don't necessarily see that much. But of course, it's all been recently exacerbated, and all the issues have been compounded so much by the pandemic. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but I guess I'm with you in that it, I thought the number might be a little bit higher, but it's still a, a number that I find to be concerning. Julia? Yeah, it's definitely a concerning number. Like Michelle, I was actually quite taken aback that the U.S. numbers were so low. Were so low, but I think um, for me, I wouldn't make too much of it. Uh, just because the poll was conducted after two plus years of pandemic, and the pandemic is the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to the healthcare system. There's a lot of stress and strain on the system. Not to take away from what either of you was saying, that there are perennial problems with the healthcare system that have not been resolved. But I think for me, the more interesting comparison would actually be numbers that look at uh, access to healthcare versus numbers that look at the perception of access to healthcare. Because one of the things I one often hears about in relation to the US healthcare system is the horror story about the cancer patient who had major surgery and their family was bankrupted in the process. We have a lot of problems with our Canadian healthcare system. I will not be an apologist for the system, and I am not in support of the status quo. Things needed to change yesterday. Mm-hmm. But I have not heard a single account of a Canadian family going bankrupt because the medical bills had piled up. And that is yeah. not a small yeah. thing. I strongly agree. And I think it's also worth making a distinction between acute care and more chronic issues when discussing the Canadian healthcare system. I'll I'll let Mike talk, but I'll come back to that. Yeah. All I wanted to say was, uh, Judy, you mentioned the pandemic, and that's a very uh, important caveat to mention. And the only thing I'm going to say about the American number being so low is I wonder how many people polled have insurance, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you've got insurance in the United States... That saves you a lot of headaches. Now, I'm not saying it, it, you can't go bankrupt and, and it's, it's not tremendously expensive for some people to have insurance and to maintain that insurance. But I wonder how many people polled had insurance versus didn't. Because if you don't have insurance, I mean, it's not even a question of having difficulty accessing health care. You probably don't have health care, right? Unless mm-hmm. it's, it's an absolute dire emergency situation. And even then, uh, you know, I've, I've We've all heard horror stories about people being being asked for their insurance card as they're lying on a table in in an emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the the big one for me, and we've seen this through uh, through COVID, is emergency access. You know that the emergency rooms that are just absolutely overrun, and yet I think we're missing the boat big time. Mm-hmm. When we have the ability to have what what I have in, in, in my town of Ajax and many places uh, in Ontario and, and, and across the country have urgent care clinics, I don't think we define well enough what should be treated at an emergency room mm-hmm. versus an urgent care clinic. And I would love to see a, a, a sort of a reexamination of the model and more investment into urgent care clinics being run 24 hours a day 
and sort of diverting away from an emergency department things that could be taken care of at an urgent care clinic. That one, like, like to me, that's kind of low-hanging fruit, and I don't understand why we haven't dealt with something like that before now. Michelle? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely um, a very pressing concern right now with all the ER closures that we've been seeing over the summer in a number of different places. Another one that I find is, is coming up with increased urgency now is a lot of rural care and models for delivering rural care. You know, we've seen community health team kind of models where various professionals cycle in and out of the community more regularly rather than having uh specialists who live on the ground in some of these places. Um, a, a lot of those conversations are happening now, but as you pointed out off the top, Mike, uh, conversations around healthcare can go on indefinitely and don't necessarily need lead to immediate action. Yeah, and, and that's why I would say that, you know, the, the last question that I had was, how do we feel about the future of healthcare in Canada? And like, I... I don't know how to feel about it. Like, I, I, I don't even, other than, than, than disappointment, I don't know what else to say about it right now mm-hmm. because I just feel like the, the, the tires have been spinning on the whole question of healthcare for so long. It feels like, like can we ever get out of this rut? I don't know if we can. And so, so the, the future for me is, is kind of cloudy, kind of murky. And, and I feel like a lot of people are, are in that same boat. Wow. Hard to believe three segments have come, have gone. It has been fantastic talking to you both. Uh, some great topics here today. Thank you both for the subjects you brought forward. And thank you for the conversation today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press. Juita Gupta, have a great weekend. Thank you. That has been our news panel. Excellent time. And we've got an entire other hour of Now with Dave Brown coming your way. So don't go anywhere. Lots of more ground to cover here on a Friday on AMI. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It is hour two of the program. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave Brown, who is away today and Monday. Extra long weekend for Dave. He'll be back on Tuesday. Coming up in this second hour of the show, Michael McNeely will describe some accessibility issues he's been encountering at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. And Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access will tell us about this year's long list for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. That lots more coming up in the second hour of Now with Dave Brown. But as always, we kick off the second hour with your regional news headlines. And we'll begin in British Columbia. The regional district of Central Kootenai has told residents of just over a dozen boat access properties on the eastern shore of Kootenai Lake to prepare to leave at a moment's notice due to the threat of a wildfire burning up a nearby mountainside. A smoky skies bulletin posted by Environment Canada covers the same area. Elsewhere, an evacuation alert remains in effect for 180 properties in the small community of Eastgate at the eastern entrance of E.C. Manning Provincial Park. Crews there have been battling a wildfire that now measures 70 square kilometers, including parts of the fire burning in the United States where it originated. 
A small lightning-caused fire in the hills northwest of Peachland has also prompted an evacuation alert for 17 properties in the Jack Creek area on the north side of Highway 97C, the Okanagan Connector. Let's go to the prairies and the Superior Court of Manitoba has changed its name after the Queen's death. Previously known as the Court of Queen's Bench, it will now go by the name Court of King's Bench. The court says the new name took effect immediately upon the Queen's passing. Similar changes are being made to the courts in Alberta, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. In Ontario, the next leaders of Toronto and Ottawa will be getting so-called mayor or strong mayor powers now that the Ontario legislature has passed a bill giving them further authority. The progressive conservative government had pitched the legislation as a way to get housing built more quickly. The new law gives the mayors of Ontario's two largest cities veto powers over bylaws that conflict with provincial priorities, such as building housing. But a council could override the mayor's veto with a two-thirds majority vote. Toronto Mayor John Tory has expressed support for the plan, while the outgoing Ottawa mayor and two of the top contenders to replace him have said they are not in favour. To Quebec. Coalition Avenir Québec leader François Legault is holding a news conference in Quebec City today a day after he briefly paused his campaign due to the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Nogo is speaking to reporters in the writing of Jean Lesage, held by Quebec Solidaire, but leaning towards the CAQ, according to polling. Quebec Solidaire spokesman Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois, meanwhile, will be 125 kilometers south of Legault in Trois-Rivières, where he's releasing his party's costed platform. Quebec Liberal leader Dominique Anglade is holding a news conference in Montreal-Vaudreuil this morning. The Liberals won that seat in 2018, but polls say they're seriously threatened by the CAQ this time around. Conservative Party leader uh, Eric Duhaime is at a Ford dealership west of Quebec City, where he will discuss his election promise to remove the Quebec sales tax on some products such as cars. And Parti Québécois leader Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon is in Montreal holding a news conference today about the state of Quebec schools. And finally, to the Atlantic region. The Newfoundland and Labrador government is offering relocation assistance to residents of Labrador's Mud Lake area. The province says homeowners could receive up to $270,000 if they decide to move out of the area near Happy Valley Goose Bay. The Mud Lake region is prone to flooding and high waters destroyed homes and forced widespread evacuations in 2017. The province says the decision to move away from Mud Lake, however, will be left up to each household. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Time now to pivot to the world of sports. And we're having a sports chat with Brock Richardson. Good morning, Brock. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. Good to uh, reconnect with you. And you wanted to take kind of a a different approach to a sports chat today while also kind of going the Queen Elizabeth angle. Yes. So I have a unique kind of angle on uh, Queen Elizabeth. For one, let's start with the fact that yesterday, the feeling to me was similar to 
how I felt when 9-11 happened. And I don't mean it as in regards to the attacks or anything like that. I mean it more in the sense of the feeling that I had. The feeling that I had was that the world sort of froze and stopped when we learned around 1.30 that she had passed. It was a very, very weird uh, feeling that the world would never be the same again. Now, having said that, I do have some uh, experience with the queen. Not that I met her, but I did share the same space as her, if you will. Um, she declared the 2012 uh, Paralympic Games open. And a little bit of a funny story with that was that when she did that, they forgot to turn the light off that was shining on her. And as soon as she declared the Games open, she walked away from her box and went down and subsequently out the building. They did not mean to have the light doing this while well, she left, but she was in her 80s at the time, and obviously it was late for her, but it's kind of an amusing but good memory that I have of Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, certain uh, deaths like this one transcend worlds all across in sports and everything else. I think of Mike, uh, Kobe Bryant, when he passed away, he transcended beyond sports. And I think Queen Elizabeth transcended into sports in this case. Yeah, I think uh, as I described during the news panel, it was the, the passing of someone. Um, and much as you said, with with 9-11, it, it, it's just it's very jolting. And you, because I, I think deep down in that moment, you you understand very quickly that the world is going to change. It's going to be a different place. And in, in the case of the Queen, um, I heard a British uh, reporter yesterday describe the Queen as sort of um, everybody's grandmother. <clears throat> and I think we really did feel that, right? I mean, I heard so many people um, speaking about the Queen after the passing of her husband uh, in kind of the same way you would talk about your grandmother. And and I and the way I heard people talking about my grandmother, right? My grandfather passed before my grandmother did. And I think a lot of people at the time were were just concerned for her and you know, I hope she doesn't, you know, get lonely and, and you know, we always hear about when one uh, of the two partners passes that the other passes soon thereafter and they died of a broken heart. Uh, so it, it was kind of interesting to hear people talking about the queen here in, in similar, um, a similar way. Um, but when it comes to the world of, of sports, I think the way we connect to certain athletes is, is just way different than your average everyday sort of grunt athlete out there that, that plays sports great yeah. example of it is Wayne Gretzky, right? When he got married? Well, first of all, when he got traded, I mean, the, the entire, there's another event where everybody remembers where they were when that happened. You know, you knew the world changed. And, and to this day, um, you know, 30 years after or 30, yeah, 35 years this year or next year uh, after that trade, the, the common phrase is, well, if Wayne Gretzky can be traded, anybody can be traded, right? Before that, there was no way anyone would ever have traded Wayne Gretzky. Are you kidding me? Like the greatest right. scoring uh, uh, forward in the history of the game? You don't trade Gretzky. But now 
that's part of the lexicon, right? That's our part of our everyday vocabulary in the world of sports. 35 years after the trade, people still say, well, if you can trade Wayne Gretzky, anybody's tradable. So that's another moment there where our connection to an athlete went, I think, above and beyond sports. Like he was a national figure. And when he, and then of course, when he got married, it was even more upsetting to people because it was like, oh, that evil Janet Jones, she's the reason why he's been traded and it's all her fault, right? So yeah. that, that certainly was one of those moments. Yeah, for sure. It, it's just, uh, uh, was a sad day yesterday and uh, it'll be something to be, you know, glued to the TV over the next uh, 10 days as we uh, put a close on Queen Elizabeth and, and move towards what will be next, but I don't think the world will ever be the same in that regard um, because she did it for so long, and I don't foresee that ever happening again where somebody holds the throne for as long as she did. I think that will stand stand the test of time for a long time, if not forever. Absolutely. Hey, uh, you've got an update on a wheelchair basketball force as well. Yeah, I wish I had a better update for you. Uh, Canada played Spain uh, this morning. They were beaten 83-38. Canada has been outscored in the first two games by their opponent by a combined 55 points. Uh, This is not good. Uh, The two teams that they played, um, Spain and Brazil, are two teams that are favorited. Uh, Japan is also in there as a favorite, which is their next opponent, which is tomorrow, uh, early hours of the morning again. Um, you know, uh, my events like this are important for athletes to have being an athlete of myself, uh, when I was, uh, younger than 23, I would have liked to have had a world championship where, uh, we could have, you know, been young and, and been around people of similar age. I mean, I was the youngest on my bocce team for years and years and years. It was fine because it taught me how to grow up. But I think championships like this allow for athletes to kind of grow in their own space around their own peers, although it having a serious tone at the same time. So, uh, you know, I, I Canada's had some struggles and Hopefully they can get a couple of wins and maybe sneak into the uh, quarterfinals, but it's going to be a tough hill to climb. Here, here, and and hoping for a good turnaround, good results for them, because I know that as a program, they've come a long way in developing their national teams, having a national training center. So uh, so we're hoping for good things ahead. Uh, Last thing here, uh, the NFL season kicked off last night. Of course, you know, I walked away from uh, last night's game smiling. Uh, so did I. <laughs> what a game by the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, but most importantly, the defense of the Buffalo Bills. This is a team that we all hope is going to be the way we saw last night. The defense was unbelievable. Uh, Von Miller was unbelievable. I personally believe that he had a little bit of, uh, you know, be in his bonnet wanting to play against his old team and, and, and do good things there. I think Cooper cup is an amazing talent. His uh, touchdown that he scored yesterday, just the presence of mind that he has to be able to, um, you know, know where his feet are and catch a football mm-hmm. and wait for impact. is just amazing to watch. I think Stefan Diggs and, uh, 
Jalen Ramsey. That matchup was really good to watch. Stefan Diggs is another generational talent. And I just, it was such a great game to watch. Mike, are you drinking the Kool-Aid of Buffalo being as good as we hope they are? Yeah. Possibly I, I, Super Bowl champions? Yeah, I don't think... Um... I don't think it was a question last night of the the Rams being bad. I just think the Bills have addressed some uh, big issues that they needed to address, and they've built very slowly and methodically to get to this point. I still think, you know, to uh, what's the expression? To be the best, you've got to beat the best. So, well, they beat the defending Super Bowl champions last night. I need to see them play Kansas City. That that to me is yeah. the the next big obstacle that and a hurdle you've got to get over. But if they can do that, yeah, I think they could be contending uh, for a Super Bowl appearance, if not a Super Bowl win. We're the, gonna enjoy the it. Thing, my, the thing, Mike, that I need to see Buffalo be better at is their turnovers. They yes. can't be turning over the ball uh, four times in one football game. I grant you that there was no points scored off any of those turnovers. Fine, but you can't be doing that through an entire regular season because it will come to bite you in the back end if you continue to it, do that. It can, but I think it, I think you can mitigate some of that by the way Josh Allen plays and his ability to run that ball. I think that I think you're absolutely right. You don't want turnovers. Turnovers are bad. But I think Josh Allen is good enough and will put up enough offensive numbers that you can kind of outscore those mistakes in the end sometimes. Uh, Brock, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Have yourself a great weekend, and we'll chat with you on Monday. We will indeed. Have a great weekend, Mike. Thanks very much. Brock Richardson chatting sports with us. Right now, time to chat some weather. Here's Alex Smythe. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a high of 20. In Charlottetown, PEI, a mix of sun and clouds with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 21. In St. John's, New Brunswick, a mix of sun and cloud turning to showers by the afternoon and a high of 23. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly sunny with a high of 26. In Toronto, Ontario, sunny and a high of 27. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, same thing, is sunny and a high of 27. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny with a high of 20. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers an hour this morning, and then it becomes a mix of sunny clouds with a high of 19. In Lethbridge, Alberta, there's showers this morning and possibly this afternoon before turning to a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 16. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny with a high of 17. In White Horse, Yukon, a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers this afternoon with wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour and a high of 16. In Kelowna, BC, it's sunny and a high of 23. And then finally in Vancouver, British Columbia, it's sunny and a high of 22. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Appreciate it. When we come back after the break, Michael McNeely will discuss some of his accessibility issues that he's been encountering at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. But first, the Apple Watch is growing. Here's reporter Sherry Preston with Tech Trends. 
Alongside the new Series 8 and SE smartwatches from Apple, the company also showed off its biggest wearable yet, the Apple Watch Ultra. Which is the all-new product category that is focused more on extreme sports. 9 to 5 Max Chance Miller says it comes with chunkier controls designed to be used while wearing gloves. That includes a new action button. It's basically just a customizable button that you can program to do almost anything. So it can give you access to starting and a specific workout, opening something like the Compass app, which has a ton of new features like waypoints. The Ultra starts at just under 800 bucks. And that's actually quite a bit less than what we were all expecting. We were thinking at least a thousand, especially compared to some of the other ultra dur- durable fitness watches on the market from companies like Garmin. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is off today and Monday. He'll be back on Tuesday. We're continuing our conversation on this year's Toronto International Film Festival, which kicked off this week. Yesterday, Dave had a chance to catch up with Michael McNeely to share his thoughts on accessibility issues at this year's festival. Let's have a look and a listen to that conversation. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. With regards to my experience at the Toronto International Film Festival, I'd like to read a statement, if I may. Please do. So, on June 16th, I began my collaboration with TIFF, and I applied for the Media Inclusion Initiative, and I shared a document that had over 120 recommendations for improved accessibility. Since June 16th, I attempted to reach out many times to ask about accessibility and to find out how many films would have closed captioning, as well as to ask questions about remote access, since I am trying to attend the festival remotely, like I did last year. I have not received any clear answers yet. My support person has also made many inquiries Um, They have not received a clear answer either. Yesterday, after a series of emails, I was told that accessibility coordination was being provided on-site and that I could apply for the Media Inclusion Initiative next year. It doesn't seem to matter that I have applied this year. Um, TIFF staff seem to be trying to find things that I have fail to do what I have done incorrectly, as opposed to helping me. Um, I have asked for access to the remote and digital screenings, but I have not been provided this access. I have asked for support for my support person, but that has also not happened. TIFF has told me to go to the distributors for each phone to ask about accessibility features. To summarize, TIFF has disregarded my media inclusion initiative application. It ignored my recommendations based on years of experience, gaslit me by indicating that I haven't done some steps properly, and simultaneously told me that they have an accessibility coordinator, while at the same time telling me that I cannot have accessibility. Um, in addition, there is also, as we've mentioned last week, 
they have not provided the information in a timely manner about accessibility features for films before those very films sold, meaning that it's impossible to make an informed decision and to keep your place in the queue. What is troubling is the emphasis on in-person access when we've had two years of great remote access for people with disabilities. Remote access is often great for accessibility because people often accommodate themselves best at home. With COVID-19 and other considerations, people with disabilities often struggle with going out or attending events in person. It does not seem like TIFF has taken this into consideration. And so to end this statement, I say to TIFF, you can do better. So Michael, that's a powerful statement. Um, it's one that I think people would find really disheartening considering they have an accessibility media initiative. Let me ask you this question. We did a preview last week. We were intending to do a preview this week. Why should we even bother to platform TIFF at this point? Why should we even talk about the Toronto International Film Festival if they're not meeting an accessibility standard? Well, that's a question that's sort of given me a crisis in faith at this time because, frankly, TIFF starts on my birthday, September 8th, and it's always been something that I've always looked forward to for the last 10 years or 11 years. But I've also discovered that it gives me quite some sadness when I realize that it's not accessible and when there's nothing that I can do to make it better despite trying to do everything that I can and more. I think, I think we continue to talk about TIFF because in all fairness, you can't be an entertainment critic without knowing about the influence that TIFF has over filmmakers and members of the industry. If you take a look at almost every good film in the last 20 years, they've probably been to TIFF at some point. So it's, it's a lot of things happen at TIFF, but unfortunately, we are shut out at this present time. Michael, I remember back in 2020, before the plague happened, uh, before we found ourselves in all kinds of COVID-19 stuff, you went to Sundance and came back with some pretty frank reviews of what they were doing from an accessibility point of view. Does it feel like TIFF is perhaps falling behind other major film festivals on this front? So the thing with Sundance is, and I know this is amazing because we, we, we like to think that we're better than our neighbors in the States, but Sundance, the accessibility there is incredible. And it's leaps and bounds from what TIFF is offering right now. At Sundance, you can be you can be linked with the accessibility coordinator. You would have that person's email and would be able to ask them questions and to get information. You would be able to get support online as well as in person. Although my support person is telling me now that we're probably going to see a shift back from remote, remote events to in-person events, especially after we've assumed that the COVID-19 crisis is over. I'm really hoping that's not the case because we've had such increased accessibility through remote events. And I don't want to lose that. I don't mind going back to Sundance. I don't mind going back to Utah. But there's something to be said from watching films on your computer, on your computer and in your pajamas. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can attest to that one. Michael, I want to come back to your crisis of conscience because 
I'm personally of the belief that if TIFF is not going to meet our needs, we can talk about it in the abstract, but I don't want to give them specific platform on this show if they're not up to snuff. So I want to come back to the crisis of conscience in regards to the importance of film festivals. I think you mentioned it before, that they become a launching platform for actors and directors. But if we're excluding huge parts of the population, are, are the film festivals as relevant? This is a... This is a tough question, and it's a question to be asked on my 34th birthday, as I become a man and into the society. What is my quest now? Um, I think we need to find ways to ensure that people with disabilities get access to these COVID spaces. And that one of the ways um, documentary filmmakers with disabilities, FWD doc. One of the ways they've been doing it is they've created an access scorecard so that people with disabilities can go to a film festival and they can, um, you know, fill out a scorecard and they can provide feedback to the festivals about how they're doing. I think that's important. I think it's important to realize that people with disabilities have a voice and they need to use that voice. So I've tried to use the voice today with my prepared statement but, you know, I'm just one voice of many. There's voices of celebrities that can overshadow my voice. There's voices of funders and investors and industry wagyus who are used to having things be a certain way. There's the voices of filmmakers who are afraid to show their films digitally because they're, used, they're still used to the idea of having premieres, of having films screened inside places well, you can tell a film is sold out by the lines outside. We have to change our way of thinking. We have to say that a film is no longer good if it's not accessible. I think that's what it comes down to. I think it's something that we try and do here on AMI. We try and review films that are accessible to our audiences. Sometimes we don't do that because the films that we like are the ones that are ultimately not accessible and that hurts. I know that it hurts more than most people. But there's, there's got to be a way to make sure that all the films are seen by all the people that want to see them when they're available so that we can all be part of the conversation. Because these are conversations that are still happening. I know we may not want to give TIFF a platform, but there's conversations that are happening right now about those films that are so important. That means you have to find a way to break through. Mm. Michael, let's leave our conversation at that point for today, and maybe we can regroup and revisit this next week on how we want to continue talking about TIFF. But let's leave our conversation there for today. Happy birthday, my friend. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's an interesting deliberation as we go forward, and I appreciate your support in this um, fundamental understanding of how we do our business. That's Michael McNeely. Let's go from one Michael back to another. Thank you very much. Dave Brown in conversation with Michael McNeely uh, from Kingston, Ontario, and Michael sharing his thoughts on accessibility 
uh, issues at this year's festival. And I'd like to say on a bit of a personal note, um, I am making my TIFF debut today. There's a film that I acted in last summer that will be making its uh, Toronto International Film Festival premiere today and have three different screenings. So if you happen to be watching, uh, going to see a movie called Rosie, uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled for a French-speaking wrecking yard foreman uh, who resembles this big bald head and <laughs> makes an appearance uh, in a scene that we filmed on a very, very hot, sunny Friday afternoon in uh, Hamilton, Ontario in the summer of 2021. And uh, I look forward to seeing it on the big screen too. We're taking a break. When we come back, more now with Dave Brown here on AMI. To now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, who is away today and Monday for a very, very nice, long, extra long, in fact, weekend. And he'll be back with us on Tuesday. Right now, time for a roundtable discussion on the show. I'm happy to welcome into the conversation Nisreen Abdel Majid. Good morning, Nisreen. Good morning. And Ramia Muthan is here as well. Hi, Ramia. Hey, Mike. Happy Friday. Thank you, and happy Friday to you. We're talking about fall today and and sort of the, the unofficial end of summer, if you will, for a lot of people was this past Monday, Labor Day Monday. But I wonder if there is a sort of a particular day or particular event on the calendar or feeling when you really sort of mark fall and, and, and sort of the end of summer and the beginning of fall in your mind. Nisreen? I'd say right when I see spi- a pumpkin spice lattes trend on my Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, when people start posting their pum- pumpkin spice latte, that's when I feel like, you know what, it's officially fall. I'm not really into the pumpkin spice latte theme, um, but it it just, it's all over Instagram whenever it pops all right. What about you, Ramya? Such a good point, though. I mean, I don't check my uh, Instagram feed for pumpkin spice latte act- activity, but the other day I was at Starbucks, and I'm not kidding, four pumpkin spice latte orders in a row were given. So yeah. I'm Oy. thinking, yeah, falls falls for sure here. Mine wasn't one of them either, Nisreen. But anyway, um, I think Labor Day weekend. After the Monday, I don't know if the weather actually changes. Like yesterday was pretty hot, but it yeah. still feels like, fall right like it feels like fall has begun but i don't like seeing it because i want to wait till the 21st 22nd. <laughs> I, I i'm gonna say this about pumpkin spice for me there's only one thing that has pumpkin spice in it that i'm gonna have and that's pumpkin pie so mm. once the pumpkin pie arrives like that it's fall it's time uh the other thing for me and and it's not so much the weather because you can still get some really warm days in september um it's the early sunset right so you're right. we're sitting in our living room and and we've got this big bay window right next to the couch where we sit and watch tv at night and you kind of notice that hey wait a minute it's like 7:45 and it's a lot 
dimmer out there. Like the, it's the sun's down, and and it's we we normally we there's a house behind ours that the sun bounces off of their windows at a certain point during sunset, and when when that time on the clock and that that those sun rays in my <laughs> eyes, which caused me to close the curtains, when that starts to change, you kind of sit there going, oh, and and then you start feeling it a few days after that in the air where you get three or four cool days and then uh, a day like yesterday where it's a little bit warmer mm. and then you get back to the cool days. And so that's, that's it for me. I mean, I, I, I pay no attention to pumpkin spice, anything. Like I just think it's, first of all, it's not a thing for me. Second of all, I find it's, it's like, um, it's like Christmas in stores where they do it earlier and earlier every year. Like there were places serving yep. pumpkin spice things in August this year. It's like, come on, I get it. It's about making your money and stuff. You're not reeling me in. All you're doing mm-hmm. is getting the people who are sucked into it, spending more money. And if you do that, well, Hey, it's your money. Figure it out. Do what you want to do. Um, let me ask you both though about fall as a season. Are you a fan? Do you welcome the fall or are you kind of just sad that summer's ended? Uh, I'm in between. So I love the fall season because of the clothes. I like fall clothes and I've, I'm obsessed with fall clothes. However, when it comes to the weather, I'm just upset that this, the heat is gone. And I, I'm a big fan of the summer weather. Just like I like the warmth. I do not like the cold. And fall season, at the end of fall, it just becomes colder and colder and colder. So when you talk, Yasreen, like when you're talking about loving the, the the clothes that you wear in fall, is it is there the colors as well? Like, do you shift into a different color pattern in the fall? Just darker. Okay. I like the nude colors. Yeah. So much. Ramia, so much. what about you? Summer versus fall. Yeah, I love summer. I love all the seasons for different reasons. Um, but fall, I love for just the the walks. Autumn walks are my favorite, absolute favorite. You're talking about the sun going down, uh, Mike, and the reason, like the the way I get in, uh, like get in that game and and try to get in good headspaces about the sun going down earlier is by taking dusk and twilight walks, and I really enjoy that a lot. Um, so that's one way for me to get on board, and then. Uh, apple picking, the uh, Royal Agricultural Fair in Toronto is back, which, the Royal Winter Fair, it's winter, yep. but it's kind of around in the fall. So I love that, um, just everything. I love being out in the fall and soaking up everything I possibly can before winter becomes a thing. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that as well. I love just, I love outdoor everything in the fall. Just the mm-hmm. smell the smells of fall, the sounds of the leaves falling. Yes. Uh, and, and and the other thing is just everything is is more comfortable, right? Like yard work is yeah. more comfortable in the cooler temperatures. Playing golf. I love to play golf. I love it in the fall because the sun isn't just beating down on your head. Uh, and my wife and I just got uh, new uh, e-bikes. And so we're taking bike rides now. And nice. that's going to be a lot nicer in, in a, on, a, on a nice cool afternoon or morning versus a really, really hot one. Hey, listen, great to talk to both of you about uh, the end of summer and the arrival of fall. But uh, before we say goodbye to Ramia, we're going to find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern today on AMI-audio. Ramia, what have you guys got planned for today's show? 
our awesome Friday lineup, Mike. Um, we're talking app updates with John Beeler, and he's telling us about the new built-in macOS tool that now scans and removes malware more frequently. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that because, you know, security conversations. Two women from Windsor, Ontario, used their COVID-19 downtime, as they say it, to write a book. So Karen McGee is going to tell us why they decided to share their story. And Natalie Natus is another person sharing her story on becoming a really popular um, audiobook narrator who's actually making a lot of money as well. She's a mother, she's 35 years old, and we're going to find out how she's done it on the Chatty Bookshelf with Ryan Huey. Sounds like a great way to end the week. It's Kelly and Company, 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. Ramia, Nisreen, thank you very much for being here. Have a great show, Ramia, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Mike. When we come back after our final break for today's show, Karen McKay is going to be here from the Center for Equitable Library Access. She's going to tell us about this year's long list for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. That's next, now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for Dave, wrapping up another week here on the show. Dave is also away on Monday, so I will be back here in the chair with you at that time. Every other week, we check in with someone from the Center for Equitable Library Access, and they fill us in about the latest available accessible reading material. Today, Karen McKay is back with us, the SELA Communications Manager. Good morning, Karen. How are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Great to have you here wrapping up another week with us. And uh, earlier this week, I was flipping through uh, some uh, news stories on the the Globe and Mail and on the CBC app, and right away, Scotiabank Giller Prize jumped out. And I thought, I know what we're talking about uh, on Friday (laughs) on our segment to kick it all off. The long list for the Scotiabank Giller Prize was announced. So when we're talking about a long list versus the short list, how many titles are we talking about? This year, there's 14 on the Giller long list. So that's a pretty long list. Yeah, it is a long list. <laughs> if you're trying to catch up on it, uh, it'll be interesting to see how many people can do it. Uh, so if between the announcement of a long list, the announcement of a short list and the winner, what kind of a timeline are we looking at? So on September 27th, they'll release the shortlist, which is usually five, sometimes six books. And then the winners announced uh, on November the 7th at a big gala. So you've got a bit of time. You've got to, you know, be intentional about reading these if you want to get all 14 done or at least get the shortlist done between the end of September and the beginning of November. Now, let's talk about the uh, the collection here at SELA and specifically titles that have made this long list that might be in the collection. How many nominees do you guys have uh, available? So right now we have 11, and there's one more on its way. I think it might be in next week. Um, so hopefully we'll get them in time for people to get a chance to read them. And there's some really interesting titles this year. Um, there's just a couple I wanted to highlight. One of them is All the Quiet Places by Brian Thomas, Thomas Isaac. 
And that one actually won the Indigenous Voices Award earlier this summer. We talked about it actually on this show. It was also on the Canada Reads Longlist. And this is a debut novel, so it's really interesting to see it get so many accolades and and be so high profile uh, as a debut novel. There's another debut novel on the, the list called We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies. It's highly anticipated. It's by Searing Langsam Lawa. I hope I said that right. And it's about a Tibetan family's 50-year journey through exile. And then the other one, um, this is kind of the one I'm pulling for, to be honest, Stray Dogs and Other Stories by Rawi Hodge. Now, this is Hodge's fourth time on the Giller Long List. And his wife, uh, Madeline Chan, won in 2016 for her novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. So I'm kind of pulling for him so that they have matching hardware on their mantle for winning the Giller. Okay. Uh, this is going to be uh, fun to, to follow along here as uh, we make the cut, if you will, from the long list to the short to the winner. Uh, meantime, yesterday was International Literacy Day. Uh, and uh, so because we're, we're, we're a day late, but we still want to mention it. And there are some pretty uh, great titles that you want to bring forward here as far as Sila's featured selection. So you're suggesting that uh, these titles here celebrate the power Power of books and of reading. So, what are you bringing to us this week? Well, there's quite a few, but um, I just want to highlight a couple. So, one of them is called The Reading List, and it's a novel by Sarah Nisha Adams, and it's new. I think it was published last year. It's a really lovely story. It's about a widower named Mukesh who lives in quiet in a quiet uh, London suburb, and he's lost his wife. He has a very quiet life. He shot goes to the shops on Wednesdays. He goes to Temple. And he spends a lot of time worrying about his granddaughter, Priya, who's a, a big reader, and he doesn't really have a way to connect with her. So one day he discovers a, a library copy of The Time Traveler's Wife, which was taken out from his local library by his wife. And he reads it, and he feels connected to his wife in a, in a new way. So when he returns it, he meets a, a young but uh, very bright teenager who's working at the local library for the summer. Her name's um, Alicia. She's not really a reader, but she's discovered this crumpled up piece of paper in the back of a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, and she's kind of bored at her job. It's so slow. So she's decided she's going to read every book on this list. And the list includes books like To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Life of Pi, The Kite Runner, Pride and Prejudice, some really good books. Uh, so she reads these books, and then she starts recommending them to Mikesh, and it leads the two of them to develop this really lovely, quite close relationship as they talk about the books they're reading and the, the impact that they're making on their lives. Uh, and it also helps Alicia sort of transports her away from some of the painful realities she's facing at home. We see Mikesh become more outgoing and more connected to his granddaughter. And so I really like this book in part because it's about libraries. How can I not like it? <laughs> but also it's really, it's really, it's really a beautiful book about how uh, books can connect us, how stories can connect us and how they can help us through grief and loneliness and other difficult emotions and experiences. So it's, it's a really lovely book. I highly recommend this one. All right. Any other titles that you wanted to, uh, to bring to us? Yeah, there's a few. So um, Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar uh, Nafisi. So this is an older book. It was published in 2003, but it's kind of timely again, given what's been happening in the Taliban and uh, with the, or in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, sorry, with the Taliban denying girls education. So this book actually takes place in Iran in uh, the late 1990s, and it's a memoir of an Iranian woman who's a professor of English and Persian literature at the University of Tehran. And she 
she was forced to quit her job when she refused to wear the veil after um, that became mandatory. But she's a very passionate teacher. And so she gathers seven of her most dedicated and committed female students for a once weekly literature class in her living room. And they read all of these books that are forbidden uh, by by the authorities. They read um, Lolita, obviously. They read The Great Gatsby. They read Daisy Miller. They read Pride and Prejudice. And they discuss the books not only from a literary perspective, but also a personal one. So their stories are kind of interwoven between what they think about the books and what's happening in their own lives. And what I really like about this one is, you know, we get to see sort of the literary criticism perspective from the teacher, but we're also um, invited into very personal discussions. And they also have a, a chance to sort of talk about how great novels um, heighten our sensitivity, they reduce the, our sort of biases and, and help us see that morality is more than just a fixed formula about good and evil. We get to see some nuances. So I highly recommend this one, but if you're going to read it, um, you should probably read some of the books they discussed beforehand, otherwise you might be a bit lost. But it's a, it's a well-known classic, this book. Fantastic. Um, Home Reading Service is another one here from Fabio Morabito. Yeah, so this is actually a very charming and quite a funny um, book. It was translated from Spanish, and our main character, Eduardo, is convicted of a fairly minor offense, and he's sentenced to a year of community service reading uh, to the elderly and the disabled. So he's a very eclectic group that he reads to. There's two brothers, one who's uh, mute and moves his lips while the other acts as a ventriloquist. There's deaf parents raising children they don't know are hearing, and there's a beautiful uh, wheelchair-bound soprano singer. At first, Eduardo seems really unable to connect with the people he's reading to or with what he's reading. He doesn't really understand the meaning of the stories he's reading, and he's sort of a lost soul. He's been stripped of his driver's license. He's got a his father's dying of cancer. He's got a dying business. He's feeling kind of impotent, and he doesn't really have much in his life. But then he comes across a poem that his father had copied uh, by the Mexican poet Isabel Frere, and it affects him in a way that no literature has done before. So he shares it with the people that he's reading to, and he's kind of astonished at what the words in the poem bring out from these people. So it's very funny, it's very charming, uh, but it also has some deeper themes. It speaks to how art and literature can help us rediscover meaning in both our personal lives and in a, in a community life. So I thought I'd bring this one. It's um, from 2020. So it's a relatively new book as well. What about the End of Your Life Book Club? There's a bit of a jarring title. It is. So um, it's actually a really beautiful book. It's a book about a mother and a son book club, obviously under very difficult circumstances. Uh, Marianne Schwalbe, she's undergoing chemo treatments, and her wife, or sorry, her son will casually ask her, what she's reading. And so this starts this incredible conversation between the two of them and they begin to read the same book so they can have something to talk about as they're in the hospital waiting room. And they read everything from popular books like the number one ladies detective agency to very obscure ones to books like Randy Pausch's The Last Lecture and Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. And so this book club between the two of them serves not just to pass the time, but it really deepens their relationship and it gives them an outlet for discussing some kind of uncomfortable end of life topics. One of the the very charming things is that Will, who says he's not a person of um, of faith, he comes to understand his mother more deeply. They read the Book of Common Prayer and Daily Strengths for Daily Needs, and he sees not only the good that it did for his mother, but how all of those messages have sort of shaped his mother's life and, by extension, his own. And so one of the quotes from the book that I love is that, um, you know, these, this is what books help us do. They help us talk, but they also give us something we can talk about when we don't want to talk about ourselves. 
it's a profoundly moving book. It's a very sad book. It's a very um, personal book, but it also talks very much about the power of literature in our lives. And so, again, I think it's important on International Literacy Day or the day after to really talk about how important literature can be and how important reading can be for us. Absolutely. Um, and, and like there's one out there um, that uh, I heard on, on a podcast, the author's named James Burroughs. He's um, the he was the TV director for shows like um, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Bob Newhart, Cheers, Friends like this guy is he's, he's just a genius director behind some of the biggest shows on television. The book is called Directed by James Burroughs. And by no means is this one, you know, a, a, a sort of about, uh, at least on its face, it's not about life lessons. But when I heard him talking about the book, it was like, oh, that's my next book. Like, I got to pick that one up. So I was out shopping last night and, and, and looking for that book because, uh, you know, if there's anything that, that we need to continue to celebrate, it's reading and our act and, and, and having access to books. It's something that we talk to you about all the time and it speaks to the importance of SELA. Um, but you know, it, it's the one thing that you just never want to see go away is books. No matter how you, you absorb them, um, you don't want it to see go away and important to celebrate, even though we're doing it a day late, it's important to recognize literacy yeah. day. I uh, Karen always well, great. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's never too late to celebrate books. And sure. I did want to say, we also have that book uh, directed by James Burroughs in our, in our collection. Oh, if you fantastic. Want to read it from that or any of the authors, or, or your listeners do rather. So, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Karen, thank you very much. Really appreciate the insight on all the titles you brought here today. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. You too. Karen McKay is the communication manager for CELA, the Center for Equitable Library Access. And you can follow CELA on Twitter at CELA Library. That's C-E-L-A Library on Twitter. And that's going to do it for another week of Now with Dave Brown here on AMI. Coming up on the show on Monday on Now with Dave Brown with me because Dave will still be off on Monday. Uh, Thea Curdy's going to be here and she's going to discuss healthcare standards laid out by the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. That's Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI. Big thanks to our guests today. Michelle McQuig, Joita Gupta, Michael McNeely, Karen McKay, Nisreen Abdelmajid, Rami Amuthan, and thanks to you for being here as well. Here are the credits and thank yous to all involved here on Now with Dave Brown. Our on-air talent, Dave Brown, Alex Smythe, and myself. Sports reporter Brock Richardson, technical producer Daniel Penamondo, TV technical producer Bruce Baclarian, senior show producer Andrika Delanarol, producers Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. Thank you to all involved behind the scenes and thanks you to you for being here as well. Have a great weekend. We're back Monday on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books. 
where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.